0: This is the next to last sermon in our series entitled, One Another. For a total of eight weeks, we have examined uh, one another's statement that's found in the New Testament. And today, we come across the instruction that Paul writes to the church in Rome when he says, live in harmony with one another. The word harmony, it means a common mind. That as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to have a common mind, one with the other. This call to a uh, mutual unity of thought has less to do with you acquiescing to the other person's point of view. It has more to do with the two of you coming to a mutual understanding of how God thinks. We are like spokes on a wheel. And as we get closer to the hub, we get closer to one another. So the more we think like God, the more we think like one another collectively. The closer we are to God in his thinking, the closer we are one to another in our thinking. So this call of harmony in the body of Christ is really a call to common thinking in Christ. As I think about this uh, instruction for us to live in harmony with one another, to have a common mind one with the other, my mind keeps going back to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Now, full disclosure, uh, our plan is to study Philippians in the fall. And I tried as hard as I could this week to push off this passage. And I said, Lord, we're going to get to it later in the fall. But it seemed like every time I tried to push it away, the Lord brought me back to this slice of Scripture. So eventually, I just had to say yes. Philippians chapter 2. Verses 1 to 11. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn there. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Philippians chapter 2, I'll begin at verse 1. I'll conclude at verse 11. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship from the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. "...having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. The Philippian church was founded during Paul's second missionary journey. It was a good church. The Philippian church had a diverse membership, had a loyal love for the Lord, eagerness in evangelism, generosity that was unparalleled. But even though it was a good church, it it wasn't a perfect church. They had struggle and strife that was both external and internal. That, by the way, is the devil's mode of operation. Not only does he want to inflict some external strife that comes at the church, he wants to raise up within the church some internal struggle. And here in the Philippian church, you find evidence of external and internal strife and struggle. In a place like Philippians chapter 3, Paul speaks of that external strife that's coming against the Philippian church when he speaks of those evil men. He calls them dogs, those mutilators of the flesh. There was external false prophets that were trying to infiltrate the church, peddling a gospel that was contrary to the Scripture. They were saying that before you can become a follower of Jesus, you must first become a Jew, that you must undergo circumcision. That's why Paul calls them mutilators of the flesh. He was encouraging the church to to, to build up, to bolster against the the false doctrine that was coming at them from their culture. Because the devil has always tried to bring external strife against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not just on the external. It's not just that which is outside of the stained glass windows. But also there's internal struggle and internal strife in a place like Philippians chapter 4. The apostle straight up calls out two ladies in the church. Euodia and Syntyche he just simply says I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche agree with each other in the Lord I don't know what these two ladies were fighting about but they were at each other's throats I don't know what it was But everybody in the church knew what it was. All he had to do was just call them by name, just first name. Didn't even need their last name. He pleaded with Euodia and he pleaded with Syntyche, equally even-handed. He pleaded with these ladies saying, y'all are sisters in Christ. So he pleads with Euodia and he pleads with Syntyche, agree with each other in the Lord. Not only was there external strife and internal struggle, but even in our passage, The founding pastor says to the church, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Consider others better than yourselves. Now, why would Paul have to tell the church, do nothing out of selfish ambition? Simply because they were being selfish. Why would Paul have to say, do nothing out of vain conceit? Because they were being conceited. Why would Paul have to say, consider others better than yourselves? Because they were considering themselves better than other people. Paul is telling the church there is struggle and there is strife. It's external, it's internal, it's within you, it's around you. So you get to verse 5 of our passage. And he just simply says, let your attitude. Be like that of Christ Jesus. The word attitude could better be translated, let your mindset be like the mind of Christ. In order for there to be harmony in the church, we have to have the mind of Christ. In order for there to be harmony and a common mind within the church, the common mind that glorifies the Lord, then you and I have to grow up into the mind of Christ. We have to strive after the mind of Christ. We have to desire to think like Jesus. So let your attitude, let your mindset be like that of Christ Jesus. Now what Paul does is masterful. The next six verses He simply lifts high the name of Jesus. You do know what he's doing, don't you? He's saying, if I can catch your gaze on Christ, if I can lift high the name of Jesus, then all the struggle and all the strife would be minimized. Because the higher we lift Jesus, the smaller our problems become. So here in this passage, he just lifts high the name of Christ. There are some who say that what Paul writes here is really just an insertion of a hymn that was popular in the first century. And while I understand why some would say that, I want to contend this morning that really what Paul is writing is exalted prose under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I think that this comes from the apostle's pen. I think it, it comes as it's dipped into the inspired ink of the Lord. And as he puts it to parchment, he just lifts high the name of Jesus. And if Paul is going to lift high the name of Jesus, I thought it might be a good idea <laughs> if I just spent my time today lifting high the name of Jesus, if that's all right. So here we walk through this beautiful, exalted prose as Paul is saying, the way you deal with external strife and internal struggle, the way you deal with your own selfish ambition and vain conceit, is just look to Jesus. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. For this Jesus that he's talking about is very nature God. Don't miss that line, that Jesus is God. He's not a creation of God. He's not another God. He's not merely like God. He's not a lesser God. He is God. Any understanding of Jesus that is anything less than Jesus is God is not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is unequivocally God. Jesus never had an identity crisis. He never had to go find himself, never just sow his wild oats. He knew exactly and precisely who he was from eternity past to eternity future. Jesus is very God. Jesus is God. Jesus is very nature God. The word nature is the Greek word morphe. The Greek word morphe means unaltered essence. The unaltered essence of Jesus is God. The unaltered character, the unaltered persona, the unaltered essence of Jesus is God. It cannot be altered. He is God. He is fully God. He is completely God. He is God. This Jesus that we exalt, he is very nature God. Even though Jesus came and his nature, which also can be translated as form, his form changed. He was born a teeny tiny baby. He grew to be a young toddler. He grew to be a teenager. He grew to be a, a man. And in every station, every season of life, his morphe never changed. His essence never changed. In every season, Jesus is God. He is the child God. He is the teenage God. He is the adult God. In every phase, in every season, he is fully God because his morphe, his unaltered essence is God. Jesus, who is the very nature God. Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Did not consider equality with God. Jesus understood that he's the second person of the Trinity. He's co-eternal, co-equal with God Almighty. And yet this equality with God, the fact that he is very God, he did not grasp it. The word grasp literally means exploited it. He didn't take advantage of it. The imagery is a robber who's clinging to his loot because he doesn't want to let loose of his loot. Jesus is not a robber who's just clinging to his divinity as if not to let it go or somehow take advantage of it. No, he is equal with God, but he never took advantage of that equality. Jesus, who is very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited or taken advantage of. But instead, he made himself nothing. A better rendering of that is that he emptied himself. The question is, he emptied himself of what? What did Jesus empty himself of? The answer cannot be his divinity. Why? Because his morphe is God. His unaltered essence is God. Even if Jesus wanted to empty himself of God, he couldn't. Because his unaltered essence and nature is God. He could not have laid down his divinity. He is co-eternal, co-equal God. He is very God. There's no way he could give up that godness. So what does it mean that he emptied himself? What did he empty himself of? I think the best way for us to understand is that he emptied himself of some of his rights and privileges and prerogatives. Let me say it another way. There were times when he self-limited his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. There were times when he self-limited, he emptied himself of some of his omniscience. The word omniscience means to know everything and to know everything exhaustively well. And certainly there were times when Jesus demonstrated the ability to know everything that no mere human was supposed to know. He went to the home of Simon the Pharisee and he read that man's mind. He read the very thoughts of Simon the Pharisee. Isn't that a scary thought? To realize that what nobody else knows about you, Jesus knows about you. Nobody else can read your mind, but Jesus can read your mind. He was in the home of Simon the Pharisee, and he knew what was on the mind of Simon. Elsewhere, Jesus demonstrated his omniscience when he said with precise prophecy, not one stone will be left on the other. Jesus and the boys were at the Temple Mount, and Jesus was predicting the inevitable destruction of the temple, which would take place in the year 70 AD but then there was another time when Jesus was talking to his disciples and they were speaking about his second coming and he said regarding dates and times I do not know only my father in heaven knows now was Jesus just pulling our leg was Jesus lying no literally he self limited his knowledge I don't know, he said. I don't know the dates and the time. I know I'm coming back, but I don't know the date and I don't know the time. Only the Father knows. So when I get back to heaven and when I'm seated at the right hand of the Father, I'll just be checking him out until he says, go get your church. Because I don't know, Jesus says, the dates and the time. Only my Father knows. There were times when Jesus self-limited his omniscience. There were other times when he self-limited his omnipresence. Certainly, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, and and God is all of God, all places, all the time. He's omnipresent. But Jesus self-limited that, didn't he, when he stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth for about 33 years, He lived on a slither of land called Israel, spent most of his time in the national boundary of Israel. A few times he went outside of the territory, but for the most of his life in ministry, he was there. This one who stood outside of time and space, then stepped into time and space, this creator of time and space, who's on the outside of time and space, self-limited his omnipresence, so he came in a particular space at a particular time. When Jesus emptied himself, he self-limited some of his rights and privileges and prerogatives. He also self-limited his omnipotence. Omnipotence means all power. Certainly, Jesus demonstrated God power at a few times, many times, in the miraculous events of his ministry. I mean, he said to his dead BFF Lazarus, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came hopping out of the grave. That's power, isn't it? And Jesus stood up in the storm and said to the wind and the waves, quiet, be still. And everything was calm. That's power. But when Jesus was hanging precariously on a cross made of wood you do know that he could have called 10,000 angels, don't you? You do know that in that moment he could have in a very powerful dramatic scene come off that cross. It wasn't the nails through his wrists and his feet that kept him on the cross. It was the fact that he self-limited his omnipotence and he was committed to being obedient to the will and the word of God Almighty the Father. So there were times when Jesus limited himself, his knowledge, his power, even his physical presence. Isn't it amazing That the one who spoke the world into existence had to learn how to talk. The one who walked with Adam in the cool of the day had to learn how to crawl. The ancient of days became the infant of days. The one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills because he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He owns everything under the sun, including the sun. He owns everything, and yet Jesus emptied himself of that right and privilege, and he lived a life here on this earth that was draped in obscurity and poverty. He had to borrow just about everything in his life. He had to borrow a barn in order to be born. He had to borrow a boat to turn into an aquatic pulpit. He had to borrow a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. He had to borrow an upper room to have the Passover meal with his disciples. He had to borrow a tomb for them to put his dead body in just for three days. Just about everything in the life and ministry of Jesus, Jesus had to borrow. And yet, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the hills and everything in them. And Jesus emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? Not his divine nature. That's his morphe. It's unaltered. Essence is God. But he's self-limited at times. Let me say it another way. There were times when Jesus laid down his rights card. If you and I are going to have harmony, if we're going to have a common mind in Christ... We better take our cues from Christ. If he saw that it was a good idea to lay down his rights card, then probably there are times when you and I need to lay down our rights card. It's not that Jesus laid it down all the time. No, he demonstrated some of his power, some of his knowledge, some of his presence, some of his his wealth, some of his resources. I mean, he he demonstrated that some of it. But there were other times when he laid down his rights card. And if we have the mind of Christ, then we will learn when it's appropriate for us to lay down our rights card. There are some times when you have a right to hold a grudge. I mean, what that person did to you is unthinkable. I can't believe that happened to you. And it could be a pretty good case made that you have the right to hold a grudge. But there are times you lay down that grudge, don't you, for the sake of grace? There are times when you have a right to blast somebody. Can I get a hearty amen? I mean, what they posted, what they said, what they did, you have a right to blast them. Oh, but instead you lay down your rights card and you bless them. There are times that things happen to you and you have a right to resent it for the rest of your life. But instead of resenting it, you desire to reconcile with the one who harmed you and hurt you. As a husband, you have rights. As a wife, you have rights. As a parent, you have rights. As children, you have rights. As a coach, you have rights. As classmates, you have rights. As friends, you have rights. But there are times when following the Lord, you've got to lay down your rights card. And you've got to have the mind of Christ to know when it's time to cling to that card and when it's time to lay it down for the sake of the gospel. I've long been told that a life of following the Lord is a life of self-denial. We can't be selfish about this. We can't be selfish about life. We can't be selfish about what we want. We can't be selfish about getting our way all the time. We can't be selfish about all of our rights and privileges. No, there are times in the gospel, because of the gospel, we lay down our rights card for the sake of somebody else. And we're taking a cue from Christ, aren't we? Isn't that what Jesus did? Being very nature God, did not consider equality, but God something to be grasped or exploited, so he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. Here's a sobering thought. If there's ever a time when you think yourself to be somebody, you know, somebody important, somebody that everybody else needs to stand up and recognize. If there's ever a moment when you think you're a somebody, just remember this. Jesus had to empty himself and become nothing just to get on your level. The moment you think you're a somebody, don't ever forget that Jesus had to become nothing just to get on your level. This Jesus, he has a morphe, God. His unaltered essence is God, but he emptied himself. He laid down his rights card, and you and I ought to do the same. He took the... Nature of a servant, Paul writes. Now you think to yourself, now there's that word again, nature. And you wonder, is it the same in Greek as it is in English? Is it the same word for nature that he used earlier when he talked about the morphe of Christ is God? Is this nature the same word as that word translated nature? And the answer is yes. It's the same word. It's morphe. What Paul is saying is that Jesus has an unaltered nature of humanity, for he is a human servant. He's one person, two natures. One person, two natures. One person, two morphes. He has the morphe God. It's unaltered essence. Can't change it. He's God. And he's also human. He is the God-man. He has a morphe, an unaltered essence of humanity, and he is a human servant. These two morphes, they don't war against each other. They collaborate with each other. It's not that Jesus is some 50-50 split or 60-40 split, 80-20 split one way or the other. He's a 100%, 100% split as if that's even possible. He is fully Morphe God. He is fully Morphe human, for he is a servant. Jesus said, regarding his Morphe being God, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for I and the Father are one. In his Morphe being human, he says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, Paul says that this one Jesus has two morphes, two unaltered essences. One is that he is fully God and he is simultaneously fully human. He was in appearance as a man. Paul says he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus was in appearance as a man. How human was Jesus? The answer, he's just as human as you are. He's just as human as I am. That when Jesus was hungry, his stomach rumbled. When Jesus was tired, he slept. When Jesus had walked miles upon miles, the next day he woke up and his leg muscles ached. When Jesus preached for hours upon end, without the aid of a microphone, his voice was sore. He was human, as human as you are, as human as I am. He was tempted in every way, just as we are. The difference? He's without sin. He's victorious over all of his temptations. There are times when you are victorious over your temptations. There are other times when your temptations take you behind the woodshed, don't they? There are times when you are slain by your temptations. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Anybody there? (laughs) I mean, am I the only one who can say, yes, there are times when I am whipped? Whipped? by my weariness. I am whipped by my waywardness. There are times when I overcome temptation, other times when I'm overcome by temptation. But Jesus, he was tempted in every way just as you are, human friend, except he was without sin. He was victorious every time, every single time. He had the victory over temptation. I don't know about you, that's the kind of Savior I want. I want a Savior who's victorious over all temptation, even the ones that I fail. I want a Savior who's victorious. This is Jesus. He is just as human as we are. He was humble. His humility is seen through his obedience. Your humility will be seen through your obedience. He was humbled, obedient to death, even death on a despicable cross. The Jews hated crucifixion. In fact, in Deuteronomy, it says, "Curses the man who hangs on a tree. The Jews hated crucifixion. The Romans perfected crucifixion. By the time Jesus comes on the scene, the Romans crucified 30,000 people. They were perfect at this art form. It was a governmental deterrent towards crime. If you walked throughout the streets of some of the Roman cities of the Roman Empire, you would see uh, there on the landscape uh, crosses of wood and criminals hanging on them. And you would think to yourself, I don't want to do what he did, because if I do what he did, I'll end up where he is. I don't want to end up on my own cross. So uh, a cross was a deterrent a crime and Jesus, he died a criminal's death. Not because he's a criminal, but because you're a criminal and I'm a criminal. At the cross of Jesus Christ, you see those two unaltered morphes of Christ on display. He is God and he is human. Right there, as he's dangling between two thieves. Right there, as he's hanging there to make us holy. Right there, as he's dying in our place. He is the God-man, fully God and fully human. Because he's God, he calls the shots. Death did not overcome Jesus. Jesus overcame death. Jesus is the one who calls the shots, not the Roman centurions. It is Jesus who calls all, this, all, the, all the moments, even up until the point where he says, Tetelestai, it is finished. Payment for your sin has been paid in full. So then he bowed his head and gave up his ghost. Only God could do that. And he's fully human. At the cross of Calvary, Jesus says, I thirst. One of those most basic of human appetites I thirst. Because he is fully human, he can die in your place as your substitute, so that by his death you might live. Because he was ridiculed, you might be declared righteous in the sight of God. Because he was bruised, you might be blessed, both now and forevermore. It's Jesus who became obedient to death, even death on a despicable cross. You see, this is where, uh, if the Bible was just written by mere mortals, we would mess it up. Because we would want God to send his son and be the victorious champion, never to face death or struggle or sickness or sadness, yet Jesus came into the sadness and came down low, became obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that he could identify with you and with me, so that he could die for our sin in our place. If you and I are going to have harmony with each other, if we're going to have a common mind of Christ, not only first and foremost must we at times lay down the rights card, but secondly, you and I must Demonstrate humility before God. I don't think I know anybody who's humble by nature. I think humility is something that we have to intentionally strive for. It is pride that destroys harmony. And the antithesis of pride is humility. We don't have a problem learning how to be proud. We don't have a problem learning how to be selfish. We don't have a problem learning how to be arrogant. We know how to do that because that's our sin nature. But we do have to struggle and strive to be humble, don't we? Humility is such a slippery thing. I mean, the moment you think you got it, you lost it. You've met people like me who are proud of their humility. Well, there it goes. You just lost it. I mean, it's so slippery. And yet, because we take our cues from Christ, Jesus was humble. You see his humility in his obedience to the word and will of God. You will see our humility in our obedience to the word and the will of God. You live a life of obedience, you'll live a life of humility. If you're going to have a shared mind with Christ, if you're going to have a common mind one with the other, you've got to at times lay down your rights card, and all the time you've got to strive for humility over arrogance. Therefore, God exalted Christ. I love it in the scripture when there's a therefore. Certainly it's there for a great reason. And what Paul is telling us is that God exalted Christ. He he vindicated the gruesome death of Jesus with the glorious resurrection of our Lord. Therefore, God exalted him. He raised him physically from the dead, but then he exalted him to the highest place. He gave him the name that's above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What Paul is reminding us is that Jesus is in the highest place. He has the highest name. Because his is the highest name, every other name must be under his feet. Because he's in the highest place, everything else must be under his authority. Jesus has a name at the top of the page. Jesus has a name that's not only the sweetest name, it's the highest name. It's not only the greatest name, it's the highest name. It's not only the most glorious name, it's the highest name. It's the highest name. Every other name, every other person, every other thing under the authority of Jesus. I don't know if you all quite got that. So... So let me take just a couple of minutes and I'm gonna to try to paint the portrait for you, okay? To say that Jesus has the highest name is to remind us that Russia's Vladimir Putin is under the authority of Jesus, England's Boris Johnson is under the authority of Jesus, America's Joe Biden is under the authority of Jesus. Every preacher, every politician, every media personality under the authority of Jesus. Every teacher, every amusement park ticket taker every sanitation worker every CEO of a corporation is under the authority of Jesus every Tom, Dick, and Harry every Lisa, Sue, and Sherry is under the authority of Jesus every man, every woman every boy, every girl under the authority of Jesus every church, every corporation every business, every street every city, every country under the authority of Jesus every disease, every heartache every headache, every case of COVID under the authority of Jesus. There is nothing that is beyond His scope. There is nothing that is greater than Him. Jesus has everything under His authority. Every storm, every tsunami, every hurricane under the feet of Jesus. Every proton, every neutron, every electron under the authority of Jesus. I wish I had somebody in the house that could help me today. There is nothing that is beyond His scope, His ability, because everyone and everything is under the authority of Jesus. The bigger you make Jesus, the smaller you make your problems. All that external struggle and strife, all the internal strife, all the things that were rising up within the people of the Philippian church, all of that evaporates away when you realize that everything, everyone is under the feet of Jesus. There's coming a day when the Lordship of Jesus Christ will not be debated and it will not be denied. There's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ really is Lord. There is coming a moment when sovereign gravity will take over and every knee will bow. Where are all these knees? In heaven above, on earth beneath, in the waters below. In other words, everywhere. Everywhere there's a knee, it's gonna bow. Everywhere there's a tongue, it's gonna confess. There's coming a moment when sovereign gravity will take over, for when Jesus will descend, there'll be those whose knees will buckle, every knee will bow either we bow now by faith or we'll bow then by force either we bow now in salvation or we'll bow then in condemnation either right now we will bow out of conviction or then we'll bow out of compulsion we are not universalists. the gospel is not a gospel of inclusion but it does say that there's coming a day when every knee will bow for those in the church for those who are followers of Jesus Christ we bow in salvation for those who are anti-God They will bow out of condemnation. They won't like it, but they won't be able to help it. They won't even know what they're saying when they say, you know what? Jesus is Lord. Where would that come from? I don't even believe that, but it's a true statement. Jesus is Lord. There's coming a day when the Lordship of Jesus Christ will not be debated. It will not be denied because Jesus is coming, and everybody will say he's King of kings and Lord of lords. So Paul just uses a few verses to lift high the highest name, to tell us about the greatest name, to mention the most glorious name. It's the name of Jesus. Have you asked yourself over the last few days and weeks and months, what is this world coming to? Have you ever said that? What is this world coming to? I look at the landscape of the globe. I see what's happening in our culture and country. I know what's happening in the church. I see what's happening in my old heart. And I ask myself, what is this world coming to? I'll tell you what it's coming to. It's coming to that day when the lordship of Jesus cannot be debated, it's coming to the day when the supremacy of the Savior cannot be denied. It's coming to the day when Jesus will split the eastern sky. He will mount his white horse. He will descend. He will rescue his church. He will set up his kingdom both now and forevermore. And everyone will have to declare he's King of kings and Lord of lords. People either bow now by faith or they bow then by the force of sovereign gravity over the universe. His name is Jesus. This morning I wonder, um, what do you need? You come in here and you think to yourself, well, what I need, I need a job. Or I, I need a marriage to be mended. I need some money to buy some gas to put in my car. That's what I need. But let me take a page out of Paul's writing. You know what you really need? You need the mind of Christ. So Paul says, if we lift high the name of Jesus, everything else comes into focus. It's not that you don't ever address the other stuff. It just finds its proper place and perspective. There's some of you here and you just might need the salvation of Christ. Some of you just might need the mind of Christ. Someone might need the heart of Christ. Someone might need the forgiveness of Christ over the sin that so easily entangles. Someone else may just simply need the presence of Christ to give them peace that passes all human understanding. Whatever it is that you ultimately need this morning is found and bound in Christ. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God Almighty. This morning, if you are in need of anything Christ can give, receive it by faith. He is here, he invites you to salvation, he invites you to join this church, he invites you to receive his mind and receive his heart, to receive his forgiveness. Whatever you need is right here available for you. Won't you come in this moment? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. And Father, we ask that you help us to lift high the great name of Jesus. And Father, we ask you to help us to have the mind of Christ as we have a common mind of harmony here one with the other. Lord Jesus, we ask for you to have your way in this moment. May your favor just rest upon your church. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.